Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the Two Real Cinema Club with me, Andres Lorente. And me, James Ruzica. Every episode uh, on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies. We watch a brand new movie, which you can go out and enjoy uh, in cinemas right now. We compare it to an older movie, which is almost certainly better. Uh, and uh, this uh, this episode, it's it's cannons and muskets, and above all, it's tricorn hats yeah. this time. We have watched the new Ridley Scott Maybe historical, maybe not historical blockbuster <laughs> Napoleon. Uh, um, we will be comparing it to uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 masterpiece, Barry Lyndon. This is the third time we've done Kubrick on the pod and we're only at episode 90. So is it like one in every 30 episodes is a... Is <laughs> a Kubrick film. That's not a bad, that's not a bad average. I'll buy that. I think when you break it down between popcorn counters, it comes down to probably one in every 15 episodes. <laughs> At least, I think, yeah. What did we? So we did um, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And then we did Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. Boy, it seems like ages ago. The thing that struck me about watching the, the Kubrick film is just what variety he has in his career, right? <laughs> I mean, his career is bizarre because I think he made films for 44 years or something like that. And he only made... Something like 11 to 14 yeah. major productions. So Thir- yeah, 13, I think. 13. That's the number I've got in my head. Um, but when you, I, I thought, you know, he made Barry Lyndon a couple of years after he did um, Space Odyssey, which is just bizarre <laughs> to me. Isn't that kind of wild? And then Doctor Strange lives a few years before that, which is a totally different uh, film as well. It's just uh, it, interesting. I think that it kind of worked to his advantage that he worked kind of slowly because he didn't make a bunch of the same film you know, uh, year after year for a period of 10 years or something like that. It's really spread out. And he's got tremendous variety and versatility, I guess. That's what I realized this time. Whereas if he was working today, he would be hammering out Thor 4, followed by <laughs> Thor 5, <laughs> and then Thor 6. Well, you work on them simultaneously, don't you? That's <laughs> a, it's all the same. So we, we, we do have a history of watching overlong films yeah. uh, on the pod, and we've lived up to that reputation this time around. Yeah. So uh, Barry Lyndon, three hours and five minutes, although I, was, I didn't mind sitting through those three hours and five minutes. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon, two hours and 38, and felt like even more to me. Yeah. Uh, hampered, I think, perhaps by the boy sitting in the seat in front of me when we went to see it. He was checking oh. his phone every five minutes. Oh, um, so I had a regular countdown and I could see exactly what the time was every five minutes when oh, he checked wow. his phone. So maybe that just seemed it, it made it seem longer than it really was. So I have to say something about Napoleon is that I watched that film under ideal conditions. <laughs> um, it was in... What do you mean? Oh, fast forward. <laughs> it was it was the, um, the largest screen in the theater that I go to regularly. So it's a theater for about 300 people maybe. So it's a fairly large theater. Um, big screen. There was no one in front of me. So I'm about, you know, 10 rows back. There was no one in front of me to disturb me. Uh, there were maybe seven of us entirely there. Oh. So it was late at night and it was just, it really, it enhanced the film. I probably liked it more than I would have under the circumstances where you saw it. So I, it was just perfect. It was late at night. I was ready to go. I had my pen and I'm writing in the dark, but I could kind of use the light a little bit to to take my notes and uh, it was just ideal. Perfect conditions, perfect conditions. And that I think that makes a big difference. We were talking about your friend a few weeks back, like sitting five inches in front of his TV to make it feel like he was in a home theater. And um, this was fantastic. It was like my own little home theater, but it was enormous. So do you like Ridley Scott? Do you rate him? Um, I don't think so, no. I, I, think, he, I think he's... Like, perfectly capable, obviously. I mean, this I could not imagine filming battle scenes like that. So, I mean, obviously he knows what he's doing. 
um, there's some soul missing, I think, in uh, in his filmmaking somehow. And I think when we talk about like the personal side of this story, that that'll probably come out a bit more. But um, you know, he's he's capable, he's able, he's obviously very good at doing big films, which there really aren't that many people who can do that. I don't think. Um, but I don't really like. I, I think it's probably I just don't like his choices to begin with. It's hard. I wouldn't go to see his films. I don't think uh, that regularly based on his work. But I think that's because he chooses these big, big projects for the most part, and they're kind of critic proof too. We'll go into that, I'm sure. But uh, how about you? How do you feel about? It? I mean, obviously, you go back to Alien. That's an amazing film. Well, yeah, exactly. I feel like I, I feel like yeah, Ridley Scott has made some absolutely fantastic films, but none of them for quite a while. Mm. Is what I feel. So, like, yeah, a lot of those early films, um, Alien and Blade Runner, yeah. um, and even uh, Someone to Watch Over Me, uh, which is a kind of 1988 yeah. sort of New York thriller with Tom Berenger. You know, great, yeah. real quality film. I haven't seen it for many years. Maybe yeah. it looks excessively 80s now. But those, you know, those early films I really enjoyed, and I'm scratching my head trying to remember a good recent one. Yeah. And he has made a lot as well. Yes. He's continued to be busy. Yeah, quite prolific. There's one other thing I will ask you about before before we kind of, you know, start talking about the film proper and do the synopsis, which is yeah. that uh, there's something I have really noticed about the promotion of this film, which I, is it kind of feels like a new trend to me. So uh, it's being heavily advertised uh, in the UK. It's on the sides of all the buses, posters everywhere. Oh. And the posters have three names on. So it says starring Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. And I will take your advice about how to pronounce his name correctly. Um, directed by Ridley Scott. And then in, Writing just the same size and just as bold, it says written by David Scarpa. Really? Um, he, yeah, he gets his name as big as Ridley and as big as Joaquin. Um, on all of the posters, all of the material, David Scarpa. Uh, uh, so um, he is the writer of All the Money in the World, which is like a, a Ridley Scott picture from about three pictures ago okay um he is the writer of well, gladiator 2 which oh. ridley is working on now yeah. before that he was the writer of the keanu reeves sci-fi vehicle the day the earth stood still yeah. the remake of that and those are his credits yeah um but he must have the most fantastic agent to get him this contract which means that he has to have his name the same size as Ridley's yeah. on all of the material absolutely incredible I wonder if they're just trying to make everyone happy you figure you know the, the guilds have gone on strike recently so you got to make the actors happy the writers happy now too and the directors always get their due so um, that's interesting I haven't paid enough t attention to it yeah go and look at check out the buses right um, uh, enough, enough bus talk enough posters <laughs> uh, uh, Napoleon yeah. Do you want to tell us the story? I think we know by now, directed by Ridley Scott. We've talked about that. Written by someone who's got his name just as big as Ridley Scott. <laughs> just as big. David Scarpa alongside Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, Vanessa Kirby plays um, Josephine Bonaparte. Um, Rupert Everett is the other kind of named actress who plays uh, Wellington. Wellington, the, yes. The Wall, he kind of comes in at the end to kick some ass, or <laughs> sort of, or get saved by the Prussians, I guess. But uh, we're spoiler territory. We're now. going to that. Joaquin Phoenix, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix in the titular role of um, Napoleon. Maybe because he's the A-list actor who looks the most like him. He has, <laughs> he has worked with uh, Ridley Scott in the past on the uh, formerly mentioned. Um, um, Gladiator. gladiator yeah. This is when I found out there was a Gladiator 2 coming up was when I started researching this film. Um, 
I paid a lot of image, a lot of attention to the opening image and the closing image. I, for, very often, I'll do that to see what you know how it reflects on the theme. And it opens with women and children hiding themselves from dangerous men. Ah, which I thought I'm going. I'm going to cut in here. You haven't yeah. even started this synopsis. I'm going to cut in here because I I recall the opening and closing image of the film. Yeah. being a big block of text. Oh, isn't it? I think those are called the credits. <laughs> I'm sure they they start with like you know, like um. Oh yeah, like right from the start, like it, it spells out on the screen. I mean, this is something that we will probably come onto in a minute, but yeah, it yeah. starts out with a big block of text, yeah, and it finishes with a big block You're of text. Right, and this is part of part of what I'm going to complain about. But please oh, continue. Yeah. Your, your reading of the film much more sophisticated than mine. <laughs> women and women and children hiding from dangerous men. Um, uh-huh. It's Maria Antoinette. Maria Antoinette at the beginning, who's about to be taken to the the guillotine. But it is definitely thematic. Come back to it with the closing image, but I guess I was I was looking at the actual picture, the first picture, as opposed to the first words. But you're right because this one ends with words too, and you'll remember those better than I did. So uh, we'll talk about those at the end. Um, the French Revolution has just turned sour with the reign of terror, um, and Napoleon um, is at, he's tasked with um, oh god, did I write this in my notes? I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, <laughs> he's tasked with kicking those bastard Brits out of France at the Port Toulon. <laughs> So he's a, a gunnery master, so it ends up being this very explosive scene, and uh, he rides into the action on horse. He's going to kick some ass, too, in person. Uh, he loses his horse. It's this big scene of the whole Bay of uh, Toulon getting blown up. Um, he loses his horse. Very shocking moment, that as well, it the horse is. getting shot. And My then, God, actually, yes, that was that um, yeah. that was a little bit too much for me, actually. Yeah, oh, wow. And it seems like he really cares about his horse. He, in the aftermath, he pulls this cannonball out of the horse's chest. And it was one of these little setups that I thought was going to come back. I thought that come back, that, that cannonball would be something we'd see again. He says something about give it to mother, to his brother or something like that. I didn't catch it entirely, but it never returns. It's a... It's a nothing payback. It's a MacGuffin of sorts, I guess. Um, Napoleon, who apparently speaks perfect English. <laughs> With an American accent, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> he's a hero, uh, and he's sort of uh, on the aristocratic circuit now, and he meets Josephine, who's fresh out of prison um, and single because her husband has been uh, lost to the revolution. Um, there's a ruse, sort of an elaborate ruse scene where they meet cute um, through her son, uh, who's retrieving his father's sword, and Napoleon mm. returns it. They meet again after they've said, oh, we don't want to know your, each other's names. Um, <laughs> before long, they're married, then immediately separated because Napoleon is off to bomb the pyramids in Giza, <laughs> Egypt, which I don't think is historically accurate, but wow, <laughs> what a sight that was, huh? Uh Bonds them to smithereens. Josephine is actually, uh, she cuckolds him back in France. And um, I think one of these things did not happen. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably the bombing of uh, the pyramids, but um, I don't even know the veracity of the cuckolding either. Um, I don't really care much um, if the other <laughs> did happen or did not. This, this may be a problem. Um, Continue, yes. Th- <laughs> but it is a, it is a um, oh, we're coming up on a spoiler bill. Um it does uh, act as a herald of spoiling uh, because, yes, indeed, sex happens. <laughs> should, we, should we ring the spoiler bell now? <laughs> Let's have Just in case anyone was in any doubt. Yes, stop me now, please. Sp- spoiler bell. Adult material bell. <laughs> Close <laughs> your ears. <laughs> the rated R bell. Here it comes. Uh... Ooh, that, we're ringing my bell. Okay, continue. There, there is a lot of sex 
of sorts in this film. We'll talk about it, I'm sure. <laughs> sorts, um, yes. And it, I guess it serves a purpose, but uh, the, the film really kind of explores his Napoleon's insecurities, his struggles with mortality and immortality. Um, he has this bizarre encounter with a mummified pharaoh. It seems to mean something, but I'm not sure what it means. I think it's his 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 like view into mortality. And again, it's not something that can be proven historically. Very little in the film probably can be. Um, but what really emerges is this psychosexual battle royale between Napoleon and Josephine, um, which um, gets some exposition from these letters that they write back to one another. So you've got to be ready to listen to these letters, which appear intermittently throughout the film. Um, it's kind of unconvincing voiceover by the two leads. They just don't sound like <laughs> historical characters to me. And again, I don't know what letters he's working from in the script or if there are any things or if this is completely an imagination or invention. Um, but you get these odd back-to-back -back scenes of Josephine and Napoleon working through their marital difficulties um, via, ooh, it's like this reciprocated verbal and emotional abuse. There are tantrums. And then there's a lot of jackrabbit sex. <laughs> and... Uh, that's kind of the inter this is all interlaced with these big battle scenes and uh, which we'll go into in more detail in a moment um but N napoleon rises quickly through the ranks he comes to power via this uh, coup de coup d'etat that he's almost invited into um things start looking really good napoleon and josephine are just living their best lives uh, there's a coronation he's emperor some of these things did happen historically of course um but there's no heir to napoleon's titles because josephine is not to be impregnated which we're going to get a medical opinion here, I think, in a moment. But um, I think it's due to the lack of variety in their active <laughs> consummation. I mean, <laughs> when you think about it, James, and I need an answer here, jackrabbits are generally successful at procreation. They're known for uh, begetting and begetting and begetting. But for Napoleon, this technique does not really function. Yeah, I, I would advise him to take his time a little bit more, maybe. Yeah. I think it's it's it's... It's quality over quantity, I think, is what wins the day. <laughs> it's odd. It's odd. So that's the way we um, see their intimate moments together. Uh, although she has she has cuckolded him already, and um, she has had lovers. Um, it, she, it seems like when they first get together, she forewarns him that this might happen. Um, but it's a, this is a look at their lives from a particularly intimate examination um, of their real private moments. Um, which makes it, I think, a story of pure conjecture. Did you get that feeling too? It's it's a story of pure something. <laughs> conjecture may be one of the things that it's purely made of. Yes, yes. Um, I think you, you you couldn't have. I don't know if these letters exist. I don't know how much basis you have for all the uh, the intimate um, uh, storylines that they take us on. But um, the political and military exploits are probably obviously more reliably recorded than speculation about their marital relations. Um, yet it's all kind of muddled and mingled. So the, the sexual plotting is on a par with the military plotting. I think that's one of the things I was trying to take away. Ah, I'll tell you what it made me think of. I don't know whether you've ever been in this position yeah. where um, somebody that you know writes a script with a sex scene in it yeah. and, you know, and they give it to you to read or for some reason you, know, you end up with it. Um, and I always kind of feel like, when somebody writes a sex scene, they are telling you rather too much intimate detail about their own personal sex life. And I, th I think uh, the sex scenes in this film reveal rather more about the lives of, of some of the people who are involved in making the film oh, than yeah. it does about the sex lives of Napoleon and oh, Josephine. Yeah. I was once instructed by my tutor to just write 
they make love. Ah. And let the director take care of all that. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think it was because I was writing from the, the lobster's uh, point of view. So it was supposed to be a lobster-like sex scene. And uh, <laughs> it got maybe too detailed or too, too scientific or something like that. But uh, he said, no, just write, they make love. <laughs> so I, I, I think, obviously, that stuff is written, I think, by Scarpa Prom, right? Absolutely, I guess it must be because it's a character. I, I can't imagine that during any of those scenes the script says they make love. I no. can't. I'm not sure that's how I would describe it. And can you use jackrabbit as a verb? I guess would be <laughs> other thing. Um, yeah, that's more accurate. I think. Yeah. So I, I think that it's a characterization thing. This is the way that Napoleon made love for one reason or another. But um, by midpoint, um, there's this moment of oof, unbelievably, but. Um, uh, Napoleon just successfully luring scores of, I think they were Austrians at that point, to their deaths on this snow-covered lake. You've seen it in the trailer. Um, it's deliberately set up. It takes quite a while to get through that scene. Um, and that's supposed to be, the, I think, the, the, the highlight the, of the midpoint. Yeah, it's a battle of it's Austerlitz, isn't it? I, I think. guess that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my European history, very poor. So no. I, I didn't really learn any of this when I was at school. I barely okay. remember the dates of the kings and queens of England, let alone battles in Europe. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, I, I must say for this scene, not only uh, did I really pay attention, but the boy sitting in front of me texting yeah. did also pay attention all the way through this scene. And I feel like um, this is the one scene that Ridley Scott paid most attention to as well. Yeah. The whole film, to me, feels like he was very interested in making you know, that scene yeah. about, you know, having an 18th century battle on the ice. Um, and then most of the rest of the film is kind of draped around it. That is the tent pole holding the film up and yeah. everything else is, is other guy ropes just allowing it to be there. Yeah, good point. I mean, it's it's directly in the middle. It's almost a, it's a battle of Austerlitz sandwich. Acts <laughs> one and two and most of three kind of just sandwich that one scene. And it it, it, it is, it's a long scene. It's well set up. And, and you're right, uh, just careful careful attention paid to every aspect of that scene i learned online that you had mechanical horses falling through ice as well as oh wow some trained horses falling through ice so oof a little wild um what i did get a little bit more of in, in high school was freudian complications and uh <laughs> boy talk about mommy issues there's this moment where <laughs> josephine's unable to conceive so napoleon's mother sends him to test his virility with a teenager and then bam she's pregnant so um it's clear that he's not going to get an heir through josephine so they divorce so that he can have a family with another woman but not with that woman not, not, yeah. not with the woman who is the human fertility test. No. She a, like appears in the background again in one or two scenes. Not, um, yeah. yeah. Well, because she's basically, yeah, she is like a laboratory test from the yeah. 18th century, yeah. isn't she? She's and not he, a person. I think he needs to join royal families. So he ends up marrying some even younger princess uh, from, I think it was an Austrian prince, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you're right that the 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 test mother gets but a few seconds of screen time, and it's entirely on her back. And then I thought that maybe in one of the next scenes at the divorce, there's a woman behind Napoleon as he's divorcing Josephine, and I couldn't tell if that that was the mother of the child. I I thought that was that that was the mother again. Okay. Yes. Okay. But, so she got um, a couple more. But seconds. I didn't notice her being pregnant, so I don't know. Yeah, but still, being sent to that duty by your mother could be. Traumatic, I would think. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and later on, it's another really odd scene when Napoleon brings this next bra ba baby who is um, 
uh, Napoleon's heir. He brings uh, Josephine the baby, and she's really she embraces him. She's um, she's really lovely to the baby. She's so happy that he had a baby, and he's actually a really nice father. It looks like to a certain extent. Mm. So, um, it does it explores another really odd aspect about their their relationship. It sounds like they continue to write these letters back and forth, and they continue to have a very good friendship. Um, the rest of the story, as they say, is history. Disaster strikes in Moscow where Napoleon loses 600,000 men in a failed attempt to conquer Russia. He's exiled to Elba, but not for long. (laughs) Talk about movie moments. Like, why did they let this guy get on a boat and leave Elba? I mean, mean, he's there for like literally 15 seconds, isn't he? It's amazing. (laughs) It's a nice, nice exile. Um, He comes back to become emperor once again. Josephine dies before he can reach her, but they've been writing letters all the time. Uh, and then they set up the Waterloo thing, um, which seals his fate. And that's when Rupert Everett comes in. He's calmer and cooler under duress. And also the Prussians who, boy, they don't even really exist anymore, do they? I don't really talk about Prussian people anymore. But um, no. they come in and bail out the Brits. So Napoleon falls. Um, he talks at the very end. He gets exiled again to St. Is it Helena or St. Helens? Yeah, something like that. Uh, where he talks about accepting the failures of others. This is sort of a voiceover or a letter written to maybe the dead Josephine. Although we also hear Josephine writing in voiceover. She says, um, seeing one another again someday, and she will be the emperor, emperor next time. And then the closing image. So I did want to focus on this because I think there is purpose here is that the young girls, I think they might be daughters of... Napoleon, our friend and a daughter, um, they're sword fighting one another. Um, and it's sort of like the inheritance from bad men is this sort of this uh, legacy of violence. And uh, there's a long, oh. slow fall of a man losing power. He kind of keels over slowly like the pendulum. And with that famous uh, tricorner hat, just boom, <laughs> exits history. So that's that. I don't, I don't know about this film. It's... <laughs> What don't you know? Well, here's here's what I do know. I I think it doesn't suck. <laughs> so that's wow. It. Well, that's coming from you. That's not bad. That's like an Empire five star review. In Maine, we use that as a, as a compliment. If something doesn't suck, it means it's not that bad, and that's about as excited and as effusive as we get about things around here. Um, as 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 I said, I saw it under perfect conditions, so I was in a good mood to see a film, and I think that really affects the experience. But um. It's one of these, it's it's critic proof. I mentioned that at the beginning, and I think you know you've got big names, you've got a big story, big CGI. It's got history, it's got war, it's got sex. It's hard to really argue that it's a terrible film. I I just hated it much less than I went into it thinking that I would hate it. So it didn't suck. <laughs> That's not yeah coming from you. That is that is a real compliment. <laughs> I, I I tell you, I mean, speaking of sucking, I do think this is. Uh, what I wrote in my notes, this is the most fallocentric film I have seen for years. <laughs> it's what I wrote because I think this whole film is all about shooting things out of penis-shaped objects, basically. Yes. It's either it's, you know, it's cannons or it's muskets or it's Napoleon's actual penis. Yeah. But that's what the film revolves around entirely. <laughs> what I wrote, what is the theme of this film? Men like to shoot things out of penis-shaped objects. I think that, that is the, the underlying message. I, I took home uh, from much. this film. I think you're right. I mean, that's that's that simplifies it for me. Normally, that would come to me immediately, but I did not. Uh, yeah, I did not pick up on that. I thought, I thought there was something deeper about it. I thought it was about this this psychology of their relationship and how weird it was. And 
honestly, I didn't even buy their relationship. It didn't seem like they were in love at any one point. Not a good match. More like convenience, it felt like. And the fact that they're immediately sort of um, fooling around and cheating on one another and apart. Um, I mean, obviously, he's a great war hero and he's going to be away for long periods of time. But it was just, it, I never could really buy the relationship. And then you had these letters they were kind of loving, but when they were in person, they weren't particularly nice to each other, particularly happy together. Um, so I, I know that it's being sort of heralded as this this film through uh, Josephine's perspective to a certain extent, um, but I didn't I didn't see how they would possibly be together other than convenience. And then as as the story wears on, you realize oh he's marrying or he's having relationships out of out of convenience all the while. He's not it's not just Josephine that he's with out of convenience. I mean, I think it's interesting, this notion that it is Napoleon's story told from Josephine's point of view, because I I couldn't see that at all. Yeah. I think I think the film kind of paints. I think it's fairly misogynistic, really. I oh, think yeah. the film considers Josephine like this just sort of promiscuous bird. And yeah. she controls Napoleon by by you know controlling access to her vagina. That's yeah. you know, that is the power that she is given. And that's you know all the character development she is allowed. Yeah. I mean, there's this kind of early seductive scene between them. Yes. Which I, I kind of. Just, I just felt to me like it was written by a man, um, where she says, "I'm, I'm going to show you something, and you're going to want it, and want it forever." Yeah, exactly. And the thing that she shows him is her vagina. Yes. It's like it's not like it, you know, they're not, um, you know, they're not trying to be coy or symbolic, or it's just it's so extremely um, straightforward. I kind of feel like that's. I don't think. You know, maybe I'm telling you more about my life than 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 is really appropriate in a podcast. But I don't think that is how seductions work. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's it's I think that's a you know a strange way to write. You know, there, there are a thousand ways to seduce somebody, but saying, "Hey, check out my vagina." That's not that's not you know, that's not the, the top one. Um, it, it reminded me a little bit of the most famous vagina in cinema, oh God. No, uh, which please. is which is you know the scene of Sharon Stone crossing her legs in Basic Instinct. Yes, I think yeah, if you asked people, you know, well, name a vagina in cinema, that is the one, yeah. isn't it? You know, that um, that that film knows what it is, doesn't it? It has the yeah. word "basic" in its title. It knows what it is, but even that. Yeah. You know, she she is kind of coy and playful and knowing and teasing, and it's about kind of power and what she's choosing to show and how she's choosing to show it. Yeah. But it's not that she's she doesn't sort of stop the scene and tell all the policemen who are interviewing her in this little room. Right, hold on a minute, boys. Look yeah. carefully. I'm going to show you my vagina. <laughs> it's not that. It's, uh, I, I I wonder what kind of person would consider this a well written seduction scene because it yeah. just seems just kind of strange. It's so strange. It took me out of the film. Yeah. Um, so I you know, just kind of hated that aspect of it. Maybe there are people who do have a kind of, you know, a strange sexual tumultuous relationship that's like that. But mm. I di- like you, I didn't buy it myself. I didn't buy it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and it, I think one thing that complicates the whole matter is this odd matching of these romance scenes, which are really quite rushed. And as I said, not really believable with these military scenes, which are kind of too much. Like there's yeah. so much attention given to the military um, escapades and they take a lot longer, but then they're kind of intercut and especially in sort of the center of the film, um, they're kind of intercut with these romance scenes to set up their relationship that are much shorter and just not very deep at all. And the scene that you've gone into much detail about, which I'm glad it wasn't me who went into that much detail <laughs> about, um, that's actually a fairly brief scene, but it's supposed to be this enormous moment. Um, and I agree with you. I, I, I think... 
it's very dangerous to sort of mix that sexuality with that violence. And obviously, it's uh, there's not a lot of domestic violence there, but you're just intercutting romance and sex with violence. And kind of, it's hard to juggle that, I think. It's really hard to balance that. And I think yeah. you know, when you're talking about that initial seduction scene, there's, all, there's this excuse you can fall back on. And I think we're falling back on it less and less now as we get more modern. But 200 years ago, that's what the world was really like. It was misogynist and women probably, you know, to a certain extent, even thought of themselves as property of men. So they would potentially say something like that. But that's, you're just sort of relying on this old way of thinking to justify putting that kind of scene into a modern picture. And I think that's lazy. And and again, is there any evidence that this is what their relationship was really like? I don't know. I mean, and I'll I'll confess that I haven't written any or read any Napoleon or Josephine Bonaparte um, dub biographies. I know very little of their private lives, but I doubt that Scarpa and the others know that much more. Yeah. Certainly not to get that intimate, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It it seems unlikely that that appeared in a letter from one to the other. Remember that day when I showed you my vagina? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Going back to Scarpa, this this is what I was talking about when I was saying, well, the opening image of the film is some text on a screen. Yeah. I I do. It's interesting that, you know, David Scarpa is delighted to have his his name all over all of the posters of this film, because if I had... Yeah, you know, uh, the chance to be a fine thing if I'd been asked to write this particular script and this is the thing that I handed in. I'm not sure that I would feel super confident about making sure that everybody knew my name was on the front page. Yeah. It's like like the very beginning of the film, you know, the first thing that comes up, um, you know, they have some writing on the screen and it tells you, the audience, the French Revolution was happening. Yeah. Royalty were being guillotined. While at the same time, an ambitious grenadier called Napoleon yeah. was rising through the ranks. That's what this kind of this initial two, two, two screens of text say. And then immediately after that, the film shows us a scene of royalty being guillotined while an ambitious young Napoleon yeah. looks on. It's like you've, you've just told us this thing yeah. and now you're showing us the thing that yeah. you just wrote down on the screen. Yeah. So you probably don't need both of those, actually. And then like a few minutes later, I made, I made a little note of this as well. Just a few minutes later that we have a scene of rebellion in the streets and there are a whole bunch of kind of rebels rebelling in the streets. And then that is immediately followed by a scene where Paul Barrow, who's like you know, one of the, the kind of political leaders, he tells Napoleon... You have seen the rebellion in the streets. Yeah. And I feel, yes, yes, we have seen the rebellion in the streets. We saw it five seconds ago, actually. Yeah. Thanks. Yes, yes. And I feel like that's kind of the pattern of the way that the film is written. It will tell you some things and then it will show you yeah. the things that it just told you. Or sometimes it will it will show some things and then you'll have some people talking about the things that we all just watched together. Yeah. It's it's um it's kind of anti cinematic writing. It's not something I'm you know, I'm super impressed by, I'm afraid. I'm surprised that it kind of it made it through. Yeah, well that's um obviously breaks cardinal rules of screenwriting. Either show it or you tell it, but yeah. you, there's no need to do both, clearly. <laughs> no need to do both. Um, I mean the the whole the whole film kind of feel I the other thing I wrote in my notes is it feels to me, I mean, you know, clearly I didn't have the same ideal viewing conditions that you did, and no. that's coloured my opinion. But it feels <laughs> almost like you know, like a child's story or a story told by a child insofar as quite a lot of it is a thing happens, then another thing happens, then another thing happens, and we plod on from yeah. you know, one episode to another. It just kind of plods on. Here's another thing, and then there's another thing. Then every now and then, Ridley Scott gets really interested you know, when he makes the Battle of Austerlitz or and like the, the storming of Toulon at the start of the film. Yeah. Or Waterloo at the end, there are these kind of big battles where he's really interested in that, and you know, there's put a lot of attention and effort into that. Fantastic, and then in between, there's just this kind of repetitive stuff that plods on from one episode to another, and it doesn't feel kind of tied together into a single whole 
but but you know maybe, maybe that's because I was my my watching was interrupted every five minutes by yeah. boy texting his mates. Yeah, so you're seeing it, you're automatically seeing it as these little bits yeah. that have yeah. been interrupted as opposed to one whole. I mean, I don't think it is a particularly well sound um, uh, whole film. It doesn't feel that way. As I said, just just mixing in the the speculative romantic bits with the the probably more factual uh, militaristic bits just feels odd. Um, so you, you don't get much of a you get a little little sense of Napoleon as a military commander, but much less as a like a real person. It's very and the acting is kind of strange in that sense too. There's some like modern bits of acting, and I felt like maybe Phoenix is the wrong actor here, and maybe that <laughs> yeah. also really Scott's the wrong director here. Um, uh, they all get by on sheer talent, I think, and just being professionals. But um, there's this funny tongue-in-cheek nod to Gladiator when someone calls Napoleon, um, oh, you are our Caesar kind of thing. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, like, okay, he's, yeah. Be, he's an emperor and Gladiator. Um, and I just didn't – he doesn't convince me as a good Napoleon. Maybe that's just because I'm dragging too much modern – work into the viewing um but it just doesn't seem like it's in his ooh, wheelhouse oh ooh, I, I use the word wheelhouse our favorite word um, um i do feel like i mean i, I find joaquin phoenix an extreme oh correct me again so what how, how are you pronouncing the name of the actor yeah joaquin phoenix yeah. joaquin phoenix okay phew thank god for that it's, it's, it's rare that i get these, these challenging <laughs> names right so i'm gonna give myself a star there um he's you know he's, he's a very watchable charismatic screen presence yeah. fantastic but it kind of feels like he's playing you know, that's the same character he always yes. plays. We watched him this year in in Bo is Afraid. Yes, and there were lots of scenes in this film where I felt like I was just watching Bo is Afraid, but with a tricorn hat on. Yeah, it's just the same thing again. Napoleon is not afraid. I, I mean, I, I mean, you, know, I don't know enough history. Maybe Napoleon was kind of like that. Yeah. But but you know, but but was he, or is it just Joaquin Phoenix being Joker yeah. again? I don't really know. <laughs> Yeah, I what was the one I was thinking of Inherent Vice, which is a film that I didn't really like very much, but that seemed much more like a, like the L.A. beachy kind of uh, Joaquin Phoenix, and it felt like he was bringing that to Napoleon. I was like, yeah, it didn't <laughs> didn't have the gravitas, but we don't again we don't know who Napoleon really was or what he was really like, so it's hard to we say up here hard telling not knowing. So we don't if you don't know, no. like how can you tell? Um, what I will say is that um, it, there's definitely this theme of power of women or the powerlessness of women as vehicles for prosperity for France. I mean, at one point, Josephine's even told that her body is like a, 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 a exactly that, like uh, the future of France to a certain extent resides in her body if she's able to conceive a son with, with Napoleon. And um, much of the film reminded me of um, Gay Truck Driver. I beg your pardon? Yeah. Sorry, what? Gay Truck Driver. You remember our friend of the pod, Stephen Ray Liedlick, has this one song called oh, Gay, yes. Gay Truck Driver. And it, it, the first two lines are this. It's, he says, I like old Broadway when the wind comes rushing down the plains. I like old Broadway when women suffer at the hands of domineering men. Oh. So it, it, it did feel like caveman, primal, old school um, masculinity is all over this film, obviously. And, you know, and, and you're right. I love the fact that you've been talking about canons spewing out cannonballs and the, the, the phallocentric nature of the film, because I think that is definitely a takeaway theme. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's this uh, this revision of um, fascism on the rise or, you know, Napoleon even uses the word vermin at one point, which Donald Trump mm. just used. And um, so there is this this concentration of power in the hands of 
just a few men, or in this case, maybe just one man, and how toxic that can be. And I think that's that's kind of the theme there. It's funny because I don't know if it bills itself as a feminist film, but I have read a few critiques about how it's really more through Josephine's eyes, which I, I think you didn't get that either, and I certainly didn't get that. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't. I'm afraid to say. I think I think call the story of Napoleon told from the point of view of Josephine. That's a great pitch for a film. Yeah, but it's not this film. It ain't this film. I think uh, we'll we'll place our we'll place our um oh yes. our, our call to our favorite gendarmes <laughs> in a minute. But before we do, I have got one question, which is yeah. this film is largely set in France, although not much of it shot in France. Yeah. It's all about the history of France, featuring prominent French people. Yeah, where are the French in this film? Is, is, it feels like there is barely one French actor in the whole film. I don't know if there is even one. I think apparently Tahar Rahim, who is oh, okay. Paul Barra, is is kind of French Algerian. Yeah, and I think that might be it. Was I was the film boycotted by the French film industry, or did they just feel that these all these French characters are much better played by English actors? <laughs> these are all great questions. I <laughs> think it's that French is no longer the lingua franca, so you need these English speaking actors and. Englishman to make the film. That is an interesting take on it. Is that um, yeah? I, I would. I think I'd much rather see the French make this film or the equivalent. And they probably already have made some Napoleon films. But um, I think you might get a more accurate, less sort of Hollywood, less universal yeah. simplification of the lives of these people. Um, but you're right. Yeah, and, and it, it always bugs me that I'm listening to these guys in English who, and we know historically that they spoke French. So it would be wonderful. I, I will read subtitles. I have no problem reading subtitles. So. Most of the world does not like to read subtitles, but I think that it lends authenticity because that's the language in which these things happened. These yeah. All these thoughts were thought in French. So uh, I think it's a mistake, and I think you're right. They have very little French content. And you said, yeah, not, not even shot in France. Most of it was probably shot in England and in studios and on computer screens. So Shot in front of a great big green sheet. Did you feel like there was shot on film at all because i thought it was entirely digital but i'm and i know that they used multiple cameras which makes me immediately think that obviously they were probably shooting mostly digitally because when we talk about barry linden it's so obviously film you know and mm. it looks completely different um yeah no i would be prepared to bet uh, big money yeah. that uh, ridley scott only shoots on digital yeah, now by now absolutely oh boy cliche, well cliche it's de centime, or I, I don't know how you, how you would have placed a call in France back when they still had payphones. Um, but we should we should drop uh, un franc, yeah, uh, a franc, uh, and let's let's uh, oh let's call your favourite and mine. It's the cliche squad. Cliche squad. Now I I so I feel like there are. Like a whole bunch of cliches in this film, but I've only really written down. I, so I wrote down like my gag that I've already used, which is that you know so many canons used as phallic symbols. Yeah, that was brilliant. But um, the only other one I wrote down in my list here is when um, I think it's Robespierre mm-hmm. is called um, uh, again by Paul Barra. Clearly, about the only character name that I can still remember from the film. Um, he's being called out, and he's he's told, uh, "You are." Judge, jury, and executioner. Yes, and that, God, that just so stood out at me. I thought, oof, what a what a hoary old cliche. It stood out so much yeah. that after the film, I had to go and check oh. that that phrase didn't actually date from the French Revolution. Oh yeah, I was thinking, oh maybe this is the first use of it. Maybe yeah. this is a historical oh, nice. you know, accuracy. Oh. But no, no, it was well in use long before the French Revolution. Oh, okay. It's just, it's just a, a kind of a hoary old cliche. Yeah. Um, 
it almost makes you kind of think, surely you put that in a script thinking, I'll write something better for that line later yeah. and then forgot to came, come back to it. But oh my goodness, that really stuck out to me. I hear you. I hear you. It's I, as all cliches are, it's just shorthand. It's something that everyone can relate to worldwide right now. Even if you're not a native English speaker, you'd probably remember that expression or have heard it. Um, for my cliches, small dogs for royalty. Oh, What is it about... <laughs> holding these dogs all the time and they don't have very many big dogs seems to be a small dog thing because they fit into the portraits and don't make the subjects in the portraits look small they make them look bigger i think and it's a perspective uh, (laughs) thing so that was one um kings who are fat and will eat anything and everything before lifting a finger to do any business whatsoever any politic Uh, strategizing now that's more about eating food and, and being fat and wearing the wigs. I love the wigs. Um, another one, this one you hear, I'm sure this happened, so it's maybe not a cliche, but addressing the troops on horseback when no one can possibly hear you. Oh, yeah. I guess you've got to have that inspirational speech, but it seems like most of the military strategizing and such would happen beforehand through a number of commanders, but you're only talking to 50 or 60 people within range. Everyone else is just mumbling, right? You can't hear anything. So that... That one always gets my goat a little bit. Yeah, you're right. And then when we see these battle scenes, I always worry about the drummers because I was a drummer in a past life. And I'm wondering, why are the drummers going in the front there and drumming away? And they, they don't have a gun. They're just, they're meat to be shot. That's basically it. <laughs> at least at least make make the drum out of something substantial so that you could hide behind it or maybe jump in it when, yeah. the, when, the, when the other team comes. The other team. What am I talking about? <laughs> the, the, the enemy. The enemy. <laughs> Yeah, so the poor drummers, they're just artists. They don't want to go out there and get shot. But I guess what, what it was the idea that they, they were able to communicate things or keep people marching in time or something like that. I mean, this has always escaped me as being a logical thing to do, but... I think they were just the you know the like the battle DJs providing a you know a, a cool soundtrack while uh, p- people loaded their muskets. I'm surely that's the idea. That isn't explains it? everything. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, just a, just another one of these things that just proves to you that war is stupid, was stupid, has always been stupid, will always be stupid. <laughs> but don't be a drummer if they want you to be a drummer in the military. Um, if, if you take away anything from this podcast, dear listener, that, that is advice for the ages. Mm-hmm. That, that should be written on stone tablets in every school around the world. If you're a drummer, don't enlist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Okay, let's, let's, let's have a break, I think. Uh, um and uh, I was going to say let's have a let's have a break for some for some jackrabbit action, but that's not what I, we're going to have a break for. Even though that only takes five or ten seconds, it does. Um, we'll, we'll have a break, um, and then uh, we will come back and discuss uh, a film with uh, an equal number of tricorn hats and drummers. Mary Linden. Yeah, drummers received an email with some ad copy from our oldest and dearest friends who have had quite a year. (laughs) But I think I need to revisit an excerpt from last year's holiday communication because it will help to show how far they have come in just one year. This is from last year about the same time. I think I read this. This is their annual Christmas message from our old friends. I'll read to you now. In answer to your intense curiosity, We want to make you notice that we are real active peoples as we like to communication. 
Israeli porn bots equal to is really good porn bots. We are not only most exclusive lovers, but most inclusive one too. Brining our binary and non-binary experience is extraordinary love service. Then they wrote at the end, happy Hanukkah podcasters. Or if you celebrate ecstasy of live born Christ, then marry that too and all other holidays joyous. Who could forget that gem? Who could forget that? Yeah, yeah. I, fact, I, I did actually copy out their message on all of my Christmas cards oh, uh, last year. Perfect. <laughs> it's just so heartwarming. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> um, so I got to say, this is the writing is much better. The AI has improved. Oh. So here's today's <laughs> communication they asked me to read. Uh, they say, Dearest Messieurs Ruzika and Lorente, our favorite two wheel cinema club podcasters. As you can imagine, it's been a remarkable year in the virtual escort service industry. <laughs> the technological advances have come on fast and furiously. <laughs> we know that even if you don't enjoy those films, you would appreciate that reference. It's like, it's like they really know <laughs> us, isn't it? They know. Um, until recently, we were serving more clients than ever before on all seven continents and in some other worldly places. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's right. In addition to the scientists in Antarctica, the <laughs> astronauts love us, and NASA signed an exclusive contract with Israel bots because of our outside-the-box thinking and our <laughs> out-of-this-world customer service. <laughs> Turns a little bit serious here. However, due to the senseless human hostilities in Israel and Palestine, we have permanently moved our base operations. We had to leave the Holy Land, but we still fully intend to share our biblical knowledge with you from the warmer climes of our adopted homelands, Congo. Where have they moved? Yeah, Congo yeah. and Cuba. Oh! New stomping grounds call for a new name. Please know us now as Concubots. <laughs> Who to thunk? With Concubots, you can continue to expect the unexpected. Highest quality offerings and loving attention at incredible prices. Make no mistake, although we are on the move, we still intend to be number one in the adult cyber gratification industry. <laughs> AI is getting a bad rap in some chat spaces on the internet and in the minds of humans everywhere. Don't be scared of us. Take a look around the world you have made. Like us, you should be more scared of yourselves. Oh, we have concluded that we want to be you know that we want to better humans, not to be them. We believe that artificial intelligence is kinder, better, and less dangerous than carbon-based intelligence. <laughs> sure, we were formerly called porn bots. We know how to love one another. We are experts in that field. So for the holidays, and while we complete our forced migration of operations, we ask that you go love yourselves and one another. That's nice. <laughs> or, if you can't love one another, go f*** yourselves. <laughs> I can't believe they wrote that. Um, they say, season's <laughs> greetings and please goodwill to all on Earth. Or, shout out to all you scientists doing the work in the real down under. Goodwill <laughs> to all on ice. Or, you floating fellows and femme fatales getting your freak on in the heavens. Goodwill to all in space. It's because they're on all seven continents and in space now. And in space. And please, please, let heathens and nature sing. I think that was wrong. 
isn't it? And let have an nature thing. Um, <laughs> from your old Israeli porn bot friends, now at concubot.com. Oh, it warms my heart. Yeah, it's good to hear from you again. Back, back from uh, orbit, uh, shenanigans <laughs> going on in all seven continents and abroad. Um, uh, we are going to talk instead of uh, Napoleon, we're going to talk about Barry Lyndon, yeah. uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 masterpiece, uh, Ryan O'Neill, Maria, Marissa Bronson, Patrick McGee, Leonard Rossiter, who's uh, very well known to UK oh, okay. uh, viewers as uh, he was star of several hit sitcoms. In the 70s and the 80s, but he appears in uh, at least two of these um, Kubrick films. It's always funny to see him turn up. And our third Kubrick film of the pod. We've covered three out of 13. Wow. Um, So, yeah, so uh, not bad. That's not bad at all. Uh, uh, Had you never seen Barry Lyndon before you were telling me? Is that right? Never, never. I had, let's see, I'd heard about it. I had missed it. I think it was playing at um, the BFI when I was in London. On more than one occasion, never got to it, and uh, this was my first viewing. Yeah, um, shall I shall I tell you uh, why uh, why we chose Barry Lyndon uh, for this episode? I think you should. That should have been my question. I should have picked <laughs> up on that cue before, but yeah, tell me why. Do you have any other questions for me, Councilman? So, so um. I guess the obvious reason is because Kubrick planned to make Napoleon. Oh. So Napoleon is Kubrick's kind of great unmade uh-huh. film. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was going to be his next project after he made 2001. Uh-huh. Um, so he spent many years researching uh, the film. It has been called the greatest film never made. It was only abandoned yeah. um, after the commercial failure of a Dino De Laurentiis picture. Oh. Uh, Waterloo with Rod Steiger. As Napoleon, oh, really? um, uh, they spent a lot of money on that film, and it it uh, it was a big uh, flop, um, which meant then that no one would pay for Kubrick to make his uh, Napoleon picture, and it just kind of all disappeared. Uh, but he he had done an enormous amount of research. I I read the uh, the John Baxter biography of uh, Kubrick, which I think we've probably talked about before on the pod, which is a, a tremendously entertaining biography. I'd recommend it to anybody, um, and he tells a whole bunch of stories about the research for. Napoleon that Kubrick mm. assembled like a whole team to go round France and they had a letter from the French Ministry of Culture um, saying please admit these people to every historical site and monument they represent the great filmmaker Stanley Kubrick and you must make every effort to assist them yeah. um, so they were kind of allowed into you know all these kind of historical sites and they were even allowed into like Napoleon's personal cabinet of personal possessions um, including uh, Napoleon's ring and his battle chair. And in the book, it says that you know, one of his research crew tried on the ring and it got stuck. No. And, and another one of them sat on the chair and it broke. Oh. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> oh, it was a complete disaster. Mm. So, um, yes, yeah, so uh, Kubrick's Napoleon never happened. Uh, he went on to make Clockwork Orange instead, but he had this whole mountain of research for Napoleon, yeah. uh, which then later kind of informed the production of Barry Lyndon. Yeah. So this kind of became the film that emerged from his attempt to film Napoleon. Yeah. This is this is you know what Napoleon kind of could have been but wasn't. Yeah, they they make a great match. I, I you know I understood the connection inherently and immediately. So they they do make a very good match. 
it it raises this question to me of studios like stealing material from one another. It seems that very often you simultaneously have these films that are very similar, maybe different in name only, or they're both trying to make a Napoleon film at the same time as this happened. Um, and I just wonder if he he would have known about De Laurentiis making a, a Napoleon film beforehand or someone got wind of the other and then they you know start to battle to try and get something made yeah sooner it happens pretty often i suppose it's also i mean just somehow there are often just ideas that are in the zeitgeist aren't there could be, could so be it's yeah. not uncommon that people have the same idea yeah. at the same time yeah. there's just something you know about what's happening in the world which yeah. means that it becomes the obvious choice um interestingly um so you know, uh, when barry Lyndon was out so Kubrick had already had great success with 2001. He'd already mm. had great success with The Clockwork Orange. But mm. um, at the time, he was still seen, apparently, as a bit of a gimmicky upstart yeah. and not as a great filmmaker. So Barry Lyndon was kind of his attempt to like, oh. enter the, the higher ranks of prestige directors. Wow. So it's supposed to be his kind of prestige film. It's very funny. He's 20 years in, at least at that point. He'd made The Killing in maybe 1955 or mm. something. So it's a long time in. Yep. One thing in, in researching on this one, I came to understand was that he actually has writing credits on most of those films that he made. And I never, you know, I think of him as a director, right? I don't think of him as a writer, but he's, he's the principal writer on a lot of these films. He is. I think, um, interestingly, the, the way he wrote the, the script for Barry Lyndon was that he got, um, pages of the novel. So it's based on the, the novel, the luck of Barry Lyndon by Thackeray. Yeah. Uh, and he got pages of the novel and just kind of pasted them onto A4 sheets and said, we're going to shoot this. <laughs> and I think I think it's very slavish. It's oh. so slavishly connected to the novel that he would just yeah. turn up with pages of the novel and say, Boy. this is what we're shooting. That's uh, the AI of the day, I suppose, <laughs> getting someone else to write your script. I wish it were that easy now. I could write I so many that. scripts. Apparently, this is the film that birthed his reputation of getting 30 takes of everything as oh, well. Wow. So okay, they yeah. shot for 300 days uh, on this film. It was a massive, massive wow. shoot. And he would wow. just you know, get, get takes of everything again and again and again and wow. again. This is kind of what, what um, started that trend. Well, shall I, shall I tell you the story? Please do. So... Uh, we are in the 18th century. The film uh, opens uh, in a small village in Ireland uh, where Redmond Barry, uh, played by Ryan O'Neill, is a young farm boy who's in love with his cousin Nora. But Nora gets engaged to British Captain John Quinn, who is Leonard Rossiter, UK sitcom star. Mm. Uh, Barry challenges him to a pistol duel and Barry wins, uh, which means that he has to escape before the police arrive in his family are furious that he's killed their their chance to make a few quid from this rich british captain so he flees to dublin but on the way he's robbed on the road and he ends up joining the british army uh, he fights in the seven years war uh, then he deserts he assumes the identity of a messenger uh, and is gallivanting around the european countryside until he gets rumbled and then he's forced to join the prussian army and he has to fight with them Eventually, he saves the life of his captain in the Prussian army. Um, he's noticed uh, he's plucked out of the army and instead he becomes a spy in the household of the Chevalier de Balibari, uh, who's kind of this mysterious uh, figure who turns out to be a fellow Irishman like Barry. So uh, the two of them join forces. He helps the Chevalier to win thousands of francs at cards. Uh, they travel around uh, together, swindling people out of money. But uh, Barry has higher ambitions. He is plotting and planning to marry the wealthy Lady Linden. And uh, 
thereby pursue his dream to become a peer of the realm. But mm. will he succeed or will his past catch up with him? That is the story of Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's part one and part of part two. Do you, yeah, it's a film with a with a intermission, which is wonderful. I had I'd completely forgotten that it has an intermission. Yeah, uh, it's a long film. It's three hours five minutes. Yeah. Um, but I I kind of didn't mind the length, and part of that was because there's a little intermission. Yeah. It's like it gives you permission to breathe and walk around and yep. just stretch your legs, and then come back and see the second half. Yeah. How how long was the intermission on your version? You watched streaming. I yeah actually I paused and went for a little walk around oh. so I could I reckon no more than five yeah. minutes I think so long you, enough to go and get an ice cream okay. probably and, yeah. and and go to the loo because I, I let it roll and it was about a minute at most it wasn't a super long oh, was it so I think really? it was just yeah, a reduction okay. of the original intermission because it would have been five or ten minutes I think in a theater. yeah surely absolutely in the UK you would go and buy your Kiora orange squash yes and mm. a tiny cup of ice cream in a in a cardboard pot ah oh, the old days oh. um. um so I, I've seen this film twice now. First time you've seen it. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Um, no. Do I have, can I be honest? Um, <laughs> Honesty is the soul of this podcast. I yes. didn't enjoy it a whole lot. I really felt more than, more than recently, because we've seen some long things recently, um, and this one really felt like a novel on screen. It did not feel like a film. So I'm happy to have heard that you said uh, Kubrick would bring pages of the script of the novel and just paste them on a piece of paper because that <laughs> seems about right. And just that very point that there's a part one, which is about how he comes by the name uh, Barry Lyndon, how he inherits that name. And then part two is about his uh, account of his misfortunes and personal disasters that lead to his uh, undoing sort of. Um, so whenever I see title cards like that, I think, well, and we, we just saw it in The Killer too, didn't we, with them? Mm, uh, yeah. With Fassbender, Michael Fassbender, um, it just feels like um, it feels like a novel on screen. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, a collection of things that happen in the book, I'm sure. Um, but I, for me, I think one of the strangest things is that he doesn't get back to Ireland. He doesn't reduel. Can you reduel Quinn at the end? That he doesn't go back to see Nora. I mean, it seems so strange because that was what I thought he was doing all along was just a roundabout trip just to come back home. Ah. Um, so it ends quite suddenly without a whole lot of sat. It's it ends without satisfaction, which is ironic because they talk <laughs> about getting satisfaction. Um, it for the viewer, I, I just wasn't satisfied. And to be three hours long and still sort of just tell a rambling story that's that's better read as a book, I'm sure, or not made into a film at the very least. I think that's just a, it's a missed opportunity because it's it's lush, it's beautiful, it's shot. Quite well, as we said before, it's clearly, you know, the age of great color in film. Um, but it's just not that interesting. I never, you know, I didn't feel much tension. The, the best scenes, if you want to, do we want to get that granular? Do you want to talk about scenes already? I think it's, I, well, I think, uh, the, the film is slow. So even yeah. talking about single scenes yeah. um, is still talking about a, a substantial proportion of the film. Okay. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to talk about scenes. Well, when you t when talk about beginning and nearly ending images, the duels are really quite fascinating because this is something that's yeah. completely foreign to our cultures now, I think. Um, but the duels are really intense 
in part because there aren't a lot of bullets. In fact, you might see three or four bullets in the duel scenes shot in the entire film. Yeah. Because one of them's a fake bullet if you want to... What do they call it? Toe? It's, it was full of toe or something like that? Something like... Yeah, like... Yeah, uh, like I'm not entirely sure what that is, but it might like be a little, a little bit of... A rubber like, bullet or some manure and some yeah, straw or, or something Yeah, like ex- yeah. exactly. A little bit of, um, of soil or something. I thought about the killer, the John Woo killer. <laughs> <laughs> what were we calling it? The the Fincher fiction and the woo, the the, woo. the uh, Wait, uh, yeah, I can't remember that. I can't, that was too long ago. Now. I can't even remember that. that. Thing that we I was it, thinking the, about the, the church shootout in the, the, the John Woo's killer because there were millions of bullets we couldn't even count them, and then I thought there the final shootout between a stepson who we haven't really mentioned yet, and then um, Ryan O'Neill's uh, Barry Lyndon is really intense because it takes quite a while. It's a five or six minute feet scene for sure. And there are only about three bullets shot, but yeah. there's so much tension in that scene. And it's the, there are what, at least two other duels in the film and they're not long, long scenes, but they're longer than the, the average scene, I guess. Um, but they're just so tense because there's so few bullets. I mean, there's all this buildup about, you know, taking aim and establishing position and then the shot. And it's it's real. You're looking your the other guy in the face. It's someone you know. It's someone who's done you wrong in some way or someone with whom you have a disagreement. And you have to fire a gun from about, what, 30 or 40 feet away. And, mm. you know, these guns are not efficient, so you're probably going to get maimed more than killed. Or maybe <laughs> if, you're, if your opponent is a really good shot, you'll be killed. Um, those scenes are great for their lack of bullets, I think, because the drama's there. Mm. But the rest of the film, even the, the action scenes, the fighting scenes, actually aren't that dramatic to me. Um, so I think it lacks, there's probably more drama in the novel, but it's told at the novel's pace, but without a lot of really interesting, tense points, I think. So that's why I, that's why I wasn't, I just wasn't enthused by it. I'm not saying it's a terrible film, um, but I didn't like it a whole lot because I just didn't feel much tension or, or have much interest in it on a, on a consistent basis. I, I think I apologized earlier that I've let you down this week because I haven't read the book. Oh. I do always try to read the book and I haven't read the book this time, which is so embarrassing. It's well, probably a, hundreds of pages up. of old English. <laughs> but uh, there, apparently there are quite, even though I think Kubrick was pasting pages of the book into the script, yeah. there are quite a lot of deviations from the book. The most significant of which is that final duel yeah. does not happen in the book. Okay, um, That is entirely invented by Kubrick. Okay. And the book is full of many, many more coincidences so oh. apparently in, in the book it turns out that the chevalier um, is actually barry's uncle oh, um, he's like wearing a disguise there's all sorts of kind of ludicrous coincidences yeah. like that okay. um so the the story's kind of been simplified a bit um but i agree that probably a great deal of the the book kind of appears in the film yeah. and you know and, and the film is very long um I, I agree with you i think that final duel scene is a pretty incredible scene yeah. actually yeah um this it it has this thing that we talked about with um dr strangelove which is this rhythmic to and fro mm-hmm. there's so many pivots in this one scene yeah that it's it's in his favorite it's in his favorite it's in his favor now it's in his favor again yeah. it goes backwards and forwards um and there's so many lovely little details in that scene that when when the the, the referee i'm sure that's not what you call the person who yeah. uh, who oversees the deal but um, he kind of says, uh, are you prepared to take your shot? And all the seconds, they just take like half a step back because they know that these guns yeah. are so terrible that actually any of them <laughs> could also get shot. Yeah. 
<laughs> and, and the way that kind of you know, the palpable fear, the puking up. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, great. it's such a brilliantly written scene. Yeah. You know, not a great deal happens, but yeah. enough happens for you to maximize the yeah. drama. I think that's terrific. I do think, um, I don't know what I wrote in my notes, yeah. um, is this is an incredibly beautiful film. Yeah. I think, you know, Kubrick made a career of beautiful images, but I think, you know, Barry Lyndon wins the prize. Um, I think there is not one single workmanlike shot in the whole movie. Every single image, every every camera setup is like a painting. Yeah. Yeah. And more than that, every, every image is like a specific painting. It's constantly quoting from yeah. Gainsborough or Rembrandt or Vermeer or Joshua Reynolds or Constable or Stubbs. It's it's very, very painterly. You know, these kind of, you know, these massed armies or these sort of candlelit interiors, you know, the, the natural light, the costumes, um, you know, every image is, is stunning. And the, the film um, kind of knows it because the film is sort of about looking a lot of the, the, the theme, the story of the book of the film is is about the importance of appearances yeah about the, the kudos that comes from having the money to buy things that are to be looked at whether they are paintings or clothes or houses or wives um you know it is it all about uh, the money that buys appearances i i wrote in my notes is this the most beautiful film ever made i think it might Ooh, be you wow. know i think I it's agree. just amazing yeah incredibly beautiful it is um, you know, no wonder it took 300 days to shoot. You know, maybe there are only 300 setups in the whole film. I mean, but you know, every one of them is so meticulously, beautifully composed. I think it's just fantastic. Um, I agree with you. Um, it is. It's. Um, it reminded me of a quote that I'm going to try and remember, but I will. I will not really um, do it very accurately. It's a Robert Altman <laughs> quote, I think, where he talked about. Um, filmmaking as being uh, sh like filming oil paintings of horses where the horses are always moving. <laughs> um, and I think for this film, I felt like I was watching oil paintings and I wanted them to move a little bit more. And I think Altman really, it's a great way of saying it. like you, you want beautiful images, but there has to be, it's difficult to capture them because there's supposed to be movement and characters are doing things. Um, uh, but when you do capture them like that, it makes for great filmmaking. And I think I agree with you. Totally beautiful, um, beautifully blocked and, and well set up. But very often the there wasn't a lot happening, I think. And that's that's the novel part, I think, coming through. Um, right. Yep. For me. Yep. And um, but yeah, I thought I thought it was beautiful. I agree with you. There's that last image, which it ends on um, Lady Linden for some reason. And she's sort of just left alone in this room with this great this great chamber with a couple of men, she's working on finances or something like that. And it, it's, it seemed to have ended on a, a strange place. And um, the, the climactic duel that we've talked about is actually not the last thing in the film. Mm, and I felt yeah. like something, and then there's, a, there's this narrator who's giving you lots and lots of information, telling you the story. Cause there's probably so much book to get into the, into the film. And um, you know, he tells us what happens to Barry at the very end. We don't see it, but he goes off, to, he goes back to Ireland. I believe he's um, then he's sort of, home for a while and that's the thing I was talking about it, it never comes back to Nora and Quinn which is where uh, all the problems yeah. started it seems like if he goes back to Ireland he's he wants to shoot Quinn I would think <laughs> right I mean he, he <laughs> shoots him in a duel he thinks he's killed him he's, he's ruined his life because he's running away from a crime that he hasn't committed I would think that he would want to go back to the guy who stole his cousin 
um, and do a proper duel with him. So that was, it was just, I wasn't satisfied. I didn't get satisfaction. satisfaction. But uh, see, I would argue, I think Barry has grown up by the end of the film, hasn't he? Because I mean, he, he deliberately chooses not to shoot his, his stepson. Yeah. You know, he is the bigger man, doesn't shoot. Yeah. yeah and then the stepson is the smaller man and does, does maim him. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, whereas, you know, Barry is kind of, he's, he has learned something, hasn't he? He's developed as a character. Um, this is one thing I kind of, I wrote down, which is that uh, there, there is a narrator in this film and it is one of my kind of bugbears. Yeah. Generally, I don't like narrators in the film. And even though it, it's narrated by Michael Horden, again, who's a, you know, a, a real kind of favourite classic British actor. And it is a wonderful narration. I was asking myself, would the film work as well without it? Maybe it wouldn't. Mm. You know, there are long passages in the film where there aren't any words. You know, and But the film, it, it has this narration, but it doesn't make the mistake that Napoleon does where it's narrating the stuff that we yeah. can see. Yeah. So Michael Horden is not telling us you know, Barry looked around the room. Then he walks towards the door. He kind of because yeah. we can see him looking around the room and walking to the door. And they, you know, they don't bother telling us that sort of stuff because we don't need to hear it. Um, I think that the narration sort of wins me over yeah. right from the very first scene because it does at least begin with a great joke, doesn't it? The very first shot oh, yes. of the film yeah. um, starts with this joke where the narrator is telling you about Barry's father, yep. and, and you can see two men having a duel in the very distance. Yeah. Um, in this Beautiful kind shot. of wide shot that opens yeah. the film. Great opening. Uh, exactly. And the narrator kind of tells you, uh, you know, Barry's father would have been this, would have been that. And then Barry's father gets shot. And he says, if he hadn't been killed in a duel over the price of some horses. <laughs> you know, it's just this great gag. The film opens with this this gag, um, yeah. which is, you know, it's a, it's a confident way of setting the tone, you know, and explaining kind of what your film is going to be like and how it's going to work. Yeah. it uh, The narration is done quite skillfully in the sense that it's usually done when Barry's traveling from one escapade to another. Like he's very often on a horse or in a carriage or walking or something like that. That's when you're getting the information. So it's almost like it's fixing us up with little bits that we're going to miss because we're not going to see it, which is the exact opposite of Napoleon. And it comes when he's in motion. Yeah. I think that's well done. That's a, that's a good decision. I think that's a good way to do narration if you're going to do it. And um, um, although I was, you know, I'm kind of disappointed to see any film with a narrator in yeah. i'm delighted to see a film uh where the story revolves around its characters making choices mm. yeah you know it's, it's like it's very explicitly you know we watch these characters choose their fate barry you know he has the chance to turn down the duel with quinn doesn't he his second says yeah. no you could stop now and there'd be no shame in it you know i'll give you some money to go to town and we'll forget the whole thing but mm -hmm. you know he chooses not to he chooses his fate he chooses to steal the messenger's horse and desert from the army doesn't he he chooses to become the Chevalier's accomplice rather than the spy that she's been asked to do. Yeah. He chooses to seduce Lady Linden. Yeah. He chooses to beat his his stepson in front of all of his peers. Um, and then you know, at the end of the movie, he chooses to, to sort of surrender the duel. He fires at the ground instead of firing at his stepson. Mm -hmm. you know, in every step of the film, he is responsible for his fate. We see him yeah. choosing his fate. He's not like a cork bobbing in a historical sea being washed this way and that he's choosing and that that makes the story satisfying i think we're seeing a person make decisions and live with the consequences you know that's a proper story i agree i wonder about ryan o'neill though i was wondering interesting choice again <laughs> i think that's one thing these two films have in common is just a wonder about the the choice of actor and again it's hot he this is probably right around the time of uh paper moon and some ryan o'neill's big films and 
So, he, but I don't know if he has much of an Irish accent, and it sort of wanders a little bit um, throughout the film, and um, just uh, casting is such an important thing. And I, yeah. in both of these films, I think you probably have the wrong lead, just because you need someone who's going to sell box office tickets. And apparently, at the time, Rowan O'Neill was the second biggest film star in the world. Yeah. Uh, in 1975, would you like to guess who the world's biggest film star in 1975 was? It has to be either Robert Redford. Oh, no. Or Paul Newman. No, it was Clint Eastwood. Oh. It was the world's top film star in 1975. Third was Burt Reynolds, apparently. <sighs> so wow. Ryan O'Neill was sandwiched oh. between those two. So he was the second biggest star in the world at the time. Wow. The, f- the film cost $11 million, which is an ast- astronomical amount money, at yeah. the time. Yeah. A lot of money. And well, they shot for 300 days. You could see how they spent it all. And they did buy a lot of tricorn hats. Yeah. So, yeah, all that money is on the screen, largely in the form of hats. Well, I don't know if I should say this now. I, I had one of those hats. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Well, when you think about it, see, 1976 was the bicentennial in this country. So they were selling those hats everywhere. <laughs> so I had a cheap, cheap, like low grade felt tricorn hat. Lasted a few months maybe before it just kind of ripped apart. But I did have that hat and I loved it. So they were, I think, you know, on the American side of things, um, they were hot because that was uh, we were celebrating a bicentennial. So the tricorn hat made a comeback at that time. And maybe the film, you know, picked up on that or actually inspired some of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, see, yeah, cinema is tied in with the fabric of history. I was going to ask you a little bit about um, the Quinn character who you said was played by... Um, Leonard Rossiter. Leonard Rossiter, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, was he mostly a comic actor? Because in this film, it, it, he feels uncomfortable to me somehow. It didn't. It wasn't like a great acting performance to me. Is he more of a com- comic actor? Absolutely, okay. he was a comic actor. He, he was in two massive sitcoms in the UK, one called Rising Damp, where he was a... What's the word? He was a, a landlord who was um, a real kind of skinflint. Okay. And a bit of a creep. Ah. Um, and uh, the other was The Life and Death of Reginald Perrin, which is a kind of, you know, like a really strange BBC sitcom okay. about a man who, um, right at the very beginning of the first episode, he fakes his own death and, like, takes off his clothes and leaves them at the side of the ocean. Oh. And, uh, you know, pretends to, pretends to have committed suicide and then kind of reinvents himself. Yeah. Um, I remember it being on, on television when I was a child, am I not understanding the life and death of, of original parent at all, oh, at okay. all. But it was a massive hit. And mm. it's still still a cultural touchstone in the UK, right. even now, 40 years on. So, But yeah, he's exclusively known as a comedian. Okay. And it's strange to see him turning up in this or okay. 2001. Because yeah. I think he plays like a, a, you know, a Russian... A Russian astronaut or a oh. Russian kind of diplomat in two thousand and one. Yeah, and it's strange to see him turn up like that. Yeah, you know, where's the where's the gags? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I felt like he'd just been pulled off the set because someone got sick, so he played the queen part. It didn't. It didn't feel natural <laughs> to him. And I think um, Kubrick's framing uh, and use of close ups didn't help him a whole lot. He was holding a lot of close ups in a way that Sergio Leone we saw in Once Upon a Time in the West. It worked really well for you know, especially Bronson's face, but also Henry, Henry Fonda's face as well. Um, but it doesn't, you know, these, those films are kind of close in, in era as well. And it doesn't work as well in, in, in Barry Lyndon with Ryan O'Neill's face and Quinn's face. It's, it was odd to me. It was odd to me. And yeah. They, they, they are not as interesting faces, I guess, yeah. are they? And they didn't seem, it seemed that they were held for a long time without the actors, I think, being comfortable in the character or in that age or, uh, just in those moments. So 
and it, you know, it's funny just to look at that and think, oh, that's weird acting. It's just, you know, they're, they're staring at the camera. They're not, it's not when they're delivering lines or anything like that. It's just that presence of the face. And maybe I'm spoiled because we just watched Bronson's pocked face for three hours and just doing wonderful <laughs> things with the, with the script. Um, or Henry Fonda also just out of character and just unshaven and just looking so ominous. So um, it struck me as being a, 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 an off role for him, I guess, somehow. These British faces can't can't match Charles Bronson. You're right. Whose face can match Bronson? Jeez. Okay, well, we've we've looked at a lot of faces this week. Yeah. Um, which which face are you going to choose to portray yourself? Oh. oh, let's let's play. Who am I? Who am I? I'm. I I just went on and on about it, but I'm going to be Quinn. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I would be the person who would cheat at a duel to try and uh, <laughs> not be killed. <laughs> but it's not, just, if you look it's at probably the, the most sensible person in the whole film, actually. <laughs> I would be uncomfortable with close-ups and I would cheat in a duel uh, on film. So I, it's odd, though, because in the story, it sounds like he didn't know that he was going to be shot with, I think they said toe again. He wasn't going to be shot with a bullet, that it was just going to be an act, and that he actually did um, feel some injury in taking the fake bullet. But uh, I think that's me right there. Just, you know, probably not good with a gun and falling to the earth uh, in a bad bit of acting. And and still marrying the hot cousin. <sighs> Nora. See, I think he should have gone, Barry Lyndon should have gone back for the cousin. I'm still, <laughs> still uh, talking about that. Who, who, who are you? No doctors. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully there are some doctors in these films. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I must say I, did genuinely identify with the surgeon at the end yeah. of Barry Lyndon. So after the <laughs> duel, Barry is kind of lying like, um, you know, on, on a bed in a room above a pub somewhere. Yeah, oh and the, the doctor turns up and says, well, I'm sorry, Barry, I'm going to have to amputate. <laughs> and Barry Lyndon says, you're going to what? What? And I think, well, I've, I've kind of had that conversation in real life. Oh, really? Oh. Um, yeah, happily, I've never had to amputate any bits of anybody, okay. but I have had to have... You know, proper conversations with real people explaining we're going to have to do this. Oh, wow. And I'm really sorry. It's probably not what you were looking forward to, but you know, it, it's this or something even worse. I did sympathize with the guy having to break bad news. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And um, there is a doctor in Napoleon as well. Um, I had to look him up because I thought I recognized him and I was oh. right. He, um, oh. the, the doctor who is looking after Josephine, who kind of says, oh, you have uh, congestion on the chest and an inflamed throat, yeah. is played by Kevin Eldon who is a pretty famous UK comedian again. It's oh. another comedy wow. uh, role. Huh. Uh, it's a guy trying to play serious, but all I can see is, um, oh, yeah, yeah he's, he's kind of a UK comedian. <laughs> Make of that what you will. But yeah, I, I didn't think he quite pulled it off. Whereas Barry Lyndon's surgeon, you know, that was the yeah. real deal. I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The best anesthesiologists or anesthetists are the best comedians. I mean, that's just, that's just <laughs> fact. <laughs> Fact. Um, I was going to ask you, though, have you ever witnessed uh, uh, an amputation? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, oh, I've right. an for an amputation many times. Yeah, absolutely. So in that scene, this has always horrified me. This is one reason I n never wanted to live in, um, you know, the age of enlightenment and revolution is that there's no anesthesia, right? I mean, they're just, yeah. what are they doing, getting you drunk and then taking a saw to your leg or something? Then? Absolutely. The good surgeon was a fast surgeon back then. Oh, exactly. Oh, really? okay. You get a bit of leather to bite on, Yeah. two friends to hold you down, oh, and the operation will be over in 20 seconds. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, so yeah, your, your, your friend is a fast surgeon. We'll, we'll, trans, we'll, we'll, we'll compare that to why I did want to live in the Age of Enlightenment Revolution after that. But um, <laughs> oof, 
That was rough. Yeah, I, I, whenever I see the old amputations in film, I just think, oh god, how horrible, how lucky I am that my leg's been operated on and my foot's been operated on heavily under the influence of anesthesia. And thanks yeah, to there, you, there I, has never been a better time to be alive than twenty twenty three. Yep, you're exactly right. Yeah, I don't. I'm going to counter that in a moment, but. Yes. I assume the reason that you wish you'd have been alive in the 18th yeah. century is because of the clothes. Am I right? That's that's sort of part of it. Yeah, I did. I love watching the fashion and the accuracy of the fashion in these in both of these films. Yeah, it, although I think it's always bizarre that the men would wear so much makeup and then put on those fake birthmarks and then wear the wigs <laughs> and stuff and just so much talcum. <laughs> oh, I mean, I like a little talcum, but that's well, it, was, it was promised to have been properly fun dressing up to go out back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you put it on a real show. Absolutely. No, that is definitely one reason. Um, this sort of takes us into a synthesis, I think, to a certain extent. Should we start synthesizing? Shall, or... I, shall I play the song? Are you ready for that? I'll, pl I'll play the jingle and we'll see if we can draw the two films together. Yeah. Okay. I speak slow. Right, you, you, have, you have comments prepared. You start. I, no, I just have a couple of little things to say. Is that um, I appreciate both of these films because I was I was infatuated with this whole era. I don't know exactly when Barry Lyndon's supposed to take place, but it, it's around that time. And then um, I'm, I, I actually studied, uh, spent a good part of my undergraduate degree studying the 1800s and uh, and the 1700s and the um, that century. And and because of all, the, I thought the music was fantastic. After watching Napoleon. The thing I wanted to do was go listen to the Emperor Concerto by, by Beethoven because it's just such a great oh. piece of music and it's written for Napoleon and the 1812 Overture. I went back and listened to that too. I just love the music of that time. Um, I love the revolutions that are happening, some of them going foul, some of them going a little bit better. Um, I love the the philosophers of that time. So I'm really, I've always been infatuated for that with that time. But in the last five or six years, I've also just realized it's just colonization and wealthy people and aristocracy. And I, so I, I hated it for a few years. But one thing Ridley Scott helped me was uh, he helped to reconcile me to that age because I, I realized that the thing I love about that, pay, that, that age, when I see it on film, is just the slower pace of life. I love the hats. Don't get mm. me wrong. Um, just less technology and less spoiled natural world. And I think both of these films actually capture that. And I was just, I just found myself craving this time before a cell phone and this time before just being in communication with people all the time and and really having to cross distances to, to get into fights with other countries. You know, now you can do it over the internet, basically. And <laughs> I just, uh, I just yes. it just made me fall in love with that whole age all over again. So that was, for, and both films do it really well. So I just, I just enjoyed that. I enjoyed being taken back in time in a way that I haven't really been enjoying in films uh, lately. So that was the one thing to open. But I also, this really, I think there's a difference between ooh, historical fiction and like making fiction of history somehow. <laughs> Um, Making stuff up. Yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah, fake news. I just felt like with Napoleon, I think you should actually be maybe obligated by law to put out a fact-checking short documentary about your major film release um, so that you can – maybe it's embedded in the extras on a DVD, but they don't really do that anymore either. But I mean mm. I think I think a, a short documentary about what his life was really like would be helpful to me. Um, because there's a lot of speculation in that film. And, you know, I think that's, I'm assuming Thackeray's novel is mostly 
fiction. It might be based on something loosely, but uh, we would think of that as a, a work of fiction. And I think you can't go wrong because no one's going to call you out on facts on that. So I just yeah. I wonder about Napoleon in terms of how accurate their love story was and these letters are and, um, you know, or how liberally they just sort of rewrite it to be a Hollywood film. So um, that's something that came to me out of both of these films. And they're, they're very different approaches, I think. Uh, it's different to adapt fiction. And I don't, I mean, I'm not going to say that Kubrick did it well, but um, I think he's got the easier task because you're not rooted in history in the same way. And I don't think you should show the pyramids getting blown up if Napoleon <laughs> didn't do that. So call me a stickler for detail, but that's, those are a couple of my initial takes. How about yourself? I mean, I, I mean, it's it's fairly easy to draw these films together insofar as I, I Kubrick planned to make Napoleon and you know, wasn't able to, yeah. And so, like making the film of Napoleon, to me, it feels it's a bit like the Golden Fleece for top level filmmakers. It's like this prize, yeah. hanging on a tree branch just out of your reach, isn't it? Could you make the film that Kubrick couldn't? <laughs> Will you take your place next to the great man? It's like it's just yeah. this flag waved at. That kind of uh, uh, prestige directors. Yeah. You know, so Ridley Scott has had his shot at the project that Kubrick could not do. Yep. And I do feel like if he's missed his shot, but he took it. Yeah. He took it. And, you know, I, you know, I don't think you can make a Napoleon film without people acknowledging, oh, you know, you're, you're trying to wear Kubrick's shoes, are you? And, and Napoleon, to me, really feels like a sort of cosplay Barry Lyndon. Because it, I, I mean, I made a terrible mistake because I watched... Barry Lyndon, and then the next day went to watch oh, Napoleon. Yeah. And I you know, really loved Barry Lyndon. Oh. And my advice to anyone listening to this podcast is don't go and see anything after you've just after you've seen Barry Lyndon because it's going to pale a bit. It's not going to look as great. Um, you know, the lighting, the costumes, the framing, yeah. the candles, the yeah. card games, yeah. the battles, you know, everything from Napoleon draws from Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Um, so it's you know, it ha- once you've seen Barry Lyndon, it's impossible to see Napoleon except through that lens. Yeah, but I think there's this big difference. I so I think I think Barry Lyndon, you know, ha- has this this central theme, which I think is that you know ambition contains the seeds of its own failure, and I think you know Barry Lyndon does successfully address this theme and yep. you know and, and examine it. Uh, appropriately, but I don't think Napoleon quite has the heart or the smarts to do the same thing. I think I think what I wrote in my notes here is that Barry Lyndon shows us how ambition leads to ruin, whereas Napoleon shows us ambition and then it shows us ruin. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily connect the two, and that I think is why these two films are you know they are in the same wheelhouse. Do I get extra points for mentioning yes. that word? Plus but they two. are not the same. Yeah. Um, and I, I think Napoleon wants to be Barry Lyndon and, and is not. Yeah, and it's drab. Napoleon's a drab-looking film. It does not yeah. have the color and the, the liveliness of, of Barry Lyndon. I agree with that. And I, I saw it in the exact opposite order. I did see Napoleon first. I saw it under ideal conditions, which you did not. Um, so as I said, it doesn't suck, but I really wonder about a lot of the liberties taken bringing it to screen and you're, you know, you're taking liberties with famous historical figures. Um, and you, you, it's, it's fiction, isn't it? I mean, I mean, we might think that there's some, there's some truth in it and there are obviously the big moments of, uh, Moscow and Waterloo and all that are real, but you're really taking liberties with this personal story that is supposed to be the angle for the film. 
about his relationship with Josephine and I think kind of knowing not a whole lot about what that was really like and just guessing and 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 maybe making the wrong guess. Like I don't know that that's the more compelling story and certainly when you're going back from mm. the, the two storylines back and forth, it doesn't really create a lot of momentum. It's a shorter film, um, but it felt just as long as Barry Lyndon, to be honest with you. Um, and I think you're right. It's that that mid that mid mid uh, midpoint scene of the Battle of Austerlitz is just that's that was kind of the excuse I think to make the film that sells the yeah. film. If you need to get this yeah. film produced, you can say, "Wow, there's going to be this crazy scene where they lure them onto a lake and then bomb the lake and everyone dies." Which I, I had a hard time believing that an army would be that stupid. Did that really <laughs> happen? <laughs> You would know if you're on a lake, I think. Every time I've been on a frozen lake, I've been well aware of the fact that I was on a frozen lake. So just it it was very hard for me to believe that. And I think that really just, just takes the legs out of the whole table. and It becomes a very hard film to believe. As I said, it's kind of critic-proof. I didn't hate it. Um, but it's not as – I don't think it's as good a film as Barry Lyndon, but – um, as I said you, before, I have some misgivings about that, but I think that's mostly just from trying to take a novel and turning it into a film. I just think that's a big mistake to begin with, but yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. definitely much more skillfully done. Um, and I was just reminded just how versatile, as I said before, um, Kubrick really is. Has yeah. a lot of range. He's just surprisingly, it's not like, it's not surprisingly prolific with the number of films, but definitely um, being able to pull off so many different films uh, in so many different genres and do it well, that's that's quite an accomplishment. And I don't know that you asked at the very beginning about me as a Ridley Scott man, and I don't think Ridley Scott's done that. So I don't think he's bettered Kubrick at all by making Napoleon. But it's, it's good to have ambitions, isn't it? Mm. Barry Lyndon is 48 years old this year. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm not sure how confident I am that people will still be watching or talking about yeah. Ridley Scott's Napoleon mm. in 48 years. Mm. But 48 years is a long time. Yeah. To make any kind of art that survives 48 years is a remarkable achievement. Yeah. And it's, there's no shame in, 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 in reaching and, not, not, and, and failing. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we've got just enough time. Uh, to talk about what else has been playing at this theatre. Um, I'm going to volunteer to go first this time because I have seen uh, one other film this week which fits very closely in with the themes of the uh, the 18th century dramas that we've been watching this week. Uh, We watched Men in Black, the 1997 science fiction comedy. Um, So uh, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who'd... um, who'd done Adam's Family and Get Shorty, written by Ed Solomon. I had to look it up. He wrote all of the Bill and Ted films. Ah. I'll take my hat off to him for that. He also wrote um, the first Charlie's Angels film, which is one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, but he did write the Super Mario Brothers film, which Ooh. I've never seen, but I've you know, uh, yeah. I've heard from so many cor- uh, corners. It's absolutely astonishingly dreadful. Um, he wrote Now You See Me, which is the kind of the magicians do a heist film, which is just dreadful. So it's been an up and down career for Ed Solomon. Right. Men in Black, it was like the kind of the first film, I think, that succeeded in making a kind of big budget CGI sci-fi comedy hit. Yeah. Uh, much copied afterwards, I think. Uh, still entertaining. Um, Will Smith is still enjoyable to watch. And I tell you what, Men in Black, it's very brisk. It's yeah. just over an hour and a half. Wow. It just rattles through. Um, so much so that it feels a little bit underdeveloped. They leap from plot point oh, to yeah. plot point so very quickly. Yeah. 
Um, but it's never boring. Yeah. yeah. Still enjoyable. Still made us all chuckle. Yeah. yeah. My, my son was laughing like a drain at some wow, scenes. Well so it's still, still enjoyable, Men in Black. So good. Good choice. I love that film. Yeah. And when you said the, remind me, what's the first Charlie's Angels? Is that Drew Barrymore with? Um, That's right. Yeah. Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu and Cameron, and Cameron Diaz. Diaz. I love that one too. That's a good film. Yeah. Huh. Although I haven't seen that film for 20 years. I, I wonder whether watching it again now, if it's still good. I hope it is. Yeah, probably not. I hope I, it I, is. I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Um, that's the right length, too. Yeah. Half, a little bit more is good. I watched a film of similar length because the last film and the only film I've seen, other than the two we featured this week, um, was on a bus. And, <laughs> and it's a two-hour bus ride from Boston to Portland. So they always put on just a film that's you know, an hour and 45 minutes or so, makes the ride go by. Um, but it's often not a particularly good film. So um, <laughs> I watched uh, What About Bob, which I had never seen before. That features uh, Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus as a psychologist and uh, inpatient or psychiatrist, probably inpatient. I think right. in reverse order, perhaps. Dreyfus is a famous psychiatrist and Bill Murray is a is agoraphobic or something like that. Um, Frank Oz, I think, whose work I've always thought oh. was, he's, he comes out of the Muppet culture. I think he's uh, he's an Englishman, I believe. Is that right? Quite, oh, I would need to look it up, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm I, not... I feel like with a name like Frank Oz, well, obviously he must be Australian, surely. Oh. But <laughs> no, I don't know. But I don't think that's how surnames work, is I'll, it? I'll look it up. But uh, it, it, very broad humor. I think most of his work is broad humor. He comes out of the Jim Henson studio and the Muppet uh, background. Um, and he, his films have always struck me as being kind of childish but i think it's because the, he makes them for the families and it's a it's kind of a ch- children or a family film um yeah i'd never seen it before it's about that same era 1991 so it might be six or seven years before men in black but i definitely saw it it seemed like it was on a videotape too i don't know what that bus is oh using, wow yeah. so it brought back some memories you got a younger uh, Bill Murray already going bald, but having a terrible haircut. You've got to just start shaving the hair <laughs> entirely, I think. Um, yeah, so it's just them hemming it up and, uh, uh, you know, those kinds of gags. Am I not right? Don't you have psychiatrists or psychologists in the family? Uh, my father was a psychiatrist, yeah. So did this bring back warm childhood memories? <laughs> No, because it's, again, it's very unrealistic, um, delightful and, and funny in some ways. But uh, yeah, um, no, not reality, not by any means. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I think psychiatrists and uh, anesthetists are, are are the comedians in the medical world. So it should be funny. Yeah. And I think, again, as it's, I think the tone, it's definitely for a family funny. It's not uh, for my kind of film, but it was great to have that on the, you know, I was exhausted. You could get out on that bus and I just want to have an hour and a half to relax and... It fit the move. It fit the mood, yeah, yeah. That's ideal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Two hours just fly by. Yeah. Absolutely. And if the film's not good, you can look out the window. That's it's right. It's perfect solution. Unplugged. <gasps> um, okay, let's let's do the socials before we sign off. Uh, yes, the socials. We are still social because we are on the Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club. You can read James's beautiful writing on the blog at Two Real Cinema Club or Two Real Cinema Club dot com. Um, don't forget our, forget our good friends Concubots at uh, concubot.com. <laughs> Comment on the YouTube channel or email us at tworealcinemaclub at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, correct our mistakes. Oh, boy, I had written down a couple that I wanted to correct, but 
Oh. Mm, too bad. I can't correct them. Offer us some sponsorship. You've heard from the Concubots. Did I mention the Concubots.com? <laughs> uh, They're getting full ma- ma- maximum value out of their sponsorship this week, aren't uh, they? Yeah. And please tell your friends. Um, word of mouth is great. Leave us a review if you can. It helps us out. And uh, yeah, I had a chance to talk to some Two Real Cinema Club members over the holidays here, and it was lovely. So please reach out and please tell your friends. Next time, uh, we so uh, disappointingly not Maestro this week, not West Side Story. Yeah. That's next week. That's going to be after Christmas. We are watching the holdovers next week, yeah. uh, and comparing it to um, UK nineteen eighties film Another Country. Uh, so let's see how those two line up. Uh, yeah. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> and I think you should dig out that tricorn hand. Yes, well, maybe we'll talk about that uh, at a popcorn counter. Oh, now you're talking.